Chapter 4 Ingersoll's Lecture on the Liberty of Man, Woman, and Child, Part 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. From the book The Lectures of Colonel Robert Green Ingersoll, Volume 2, this is the second of two parts of Ingersoll's Lecture on the Liberty of Man, Woman, and Child. Do you know another thing? I despise a stingy man. I don't see how it is possible for a man to die worth fifty millions of dollars, or ten millions of dollars, in a city full of want, when he meets almost every day the withered hand of beggary and the white lips of famine. How a man can withstand all that, and hold in the clutch of his greed twenty or thirty millions of dollars, is past my comprehension. I do not see how he can do it. I should not think he could do it any more than he could keep a pile of lumber where hundreds and thousands of men were drowning in the sea. I should not think he could do it. Do you know I have known men who would trust their wives with their hearts and their honor, but not with their pocketbook, not with a dollar? When I see a man of that kind, I always think he knows which of these articles is the most valuable. Think of making your wife a beggar. Think of her having to ask you every day for a dollar, or for two dollars, or for fifty cents. What did you do with that dollar I gave you last week? Think of having a wife that was afraid of you. What kind of children do you expect to have with a beggar and a coward for their mother? Oh, I tell you, if you have but a dollar in the world, and you have got to spend it, spend it like a king. Spend it as though it were a dry leaf, and you the owner of unbounded forests. That's the way to spend it. I had rather be a beggar and spend my last dollar like a king, than be a king and spend my money like a beggar. If it's got to go, let it go. Get the best you can for your family. Try to look as well as you can yourself. When you used to go courting, how nice you looked. Ah, your eye was bright, your step was light, and you just put on the very best look you could. Do you know that it is insufferable egotism in you to suppose that a woman is going to love you always, looking as bad as you can? Think of it. Any woman on earth will be true to you forever when you do your level best. Some people tell me, your doctrine about loving and wives and all that is splendid for the rich, but it won't do for the poor. I tell you tonight there is on the average more love in the homes of the poor than in the palaces of the rich, and the meanest but with love in it is fit for the gods and a palace without love is a den only fit for wild beasts. That's my doctrine. You can't be so poor but that you can help somebody. Good nature is the cheapest commodity in the world, and love is the only thing that will pay ten percent to borrower and lender both. Don't tell me that you have got to be rich. 
We have all a false standard of greatness in the United States. We think here that a man to be great must be notorious, must be extremely wealthy, or his name must be between the lips of rumor. It is all nonsense. It is not necessary to be rich to be great, or to be powerful to be happy, and the happy man is the successful man. Happiness is the legal tender of the soul. Joy is wealth. A little while ago I stood by the grave of the old Napoleon, a magnificent tomb, fit for a dead deity almost, and gazed into the great circle at the bottom of it. In the sarcophagus of black Egyptian marble at last rest the ashes of that restless man. I looked over the balustrade, and I thought about the career of Napoleon. I could see him walking upon the banks of the Seine, contemplating suicide. I saw him at Toulon. I saw him putting down the mob in the streets of Paris. I saw him at the head of the army of Italy. I saw him crossing the bridge at Lodi. I saw him in Egypt, fighting the battle of the pyramids. I saw him cross the Alps and mingle the eagles of France with the eagles of the crags. I saw him at Austerlitz. I saw him with his army scattered and dispersed before the blast. I saw him at Leipzig, when his army was defeated and he was taken captive. I saw him escape. I saw him land again upon French soil and retake an empire by the force of his own genius. I saw him captured once more and again at St. Helena, with his arms behind him, gazing out upon the sad and solemn sea and I thought of the orphans and widows he had made. I thought of the tears that had been shed for his glory. I thought of the only woman who ever loved him, who had been pushed from his heart by the cold hand of ambition. And as I looked at the sarcophagus, I said, I would rather have been a French peasant and worn wooden shoes. I would rather have lived in a hut with a vine growing over the door and the grapes growing and ripening in the autumn sun. I would rather have been that peasant with my wife by my side and my children upon my knees, twining their arms of affection about me. I would rather have been that poor French peasant and gone down at last to the eternal promiscuity of the dust, followed by those who loved me. I would a thousand times rather have been that French peasant than that imperial personative of force and murder. And so I would, ten thousand times. It is not necessary to be great to be happy. It is not necessary to be rich to be just and generous, and to have a heart filled with divine affection. No matter whether you are rich or poor, Use your wife as though she were a splendid creation, and she will fill your life with perfume and joy. And do you know it is a splendid thing for me to think that the woman you really love will never grow old to you? Through the wrinkles of time, through the music of years, if you really love her, you will always see the face you loved and won. And a woman who really loves a man does not see that he grows older. He is not decrepit. He does not tremble. He is not old. She always sees the same gallant gentleman who won her hand and heart. 
I like to think of it in that way. I like to think of all passions. Love is eternal. And, as Shakespeare says, although time with his sickle can rob ruby lips and sparkling eyes, let him reach as far as he can, he cannot quite touch love that reaches even to the end of the tomb. And to love in that way, and then go down the hill of life together, as you go down here, perhaps the laughter of grandchildren, the birds of joy and love sing once more in the leafless branches of age. I believe in the fireside. I believe in the democracy of home. I believe in the republicanism of the family. I believe in liberty and equality with those we love. If women have been slaves, what shall I say of children? Of the little children in the alleys and sub-cellars, the little children who turn pale when they hear their father's footsteps, little children who run away when they only hear their names called by the lips of another, little children, the children of poverty, the children of crime, the children of brutality, wherever you are flotsam and jetsam upon the wild mad sea of life my heart goes out to you one and all i tell you the children have the same rights that we have and we ought to treat them as though they were human beings and they should be reared by love by kindness by tenderness and not by brutality that is my idea of children when your little child tells a lie, don't rush at him as though the world were about to go into bankruptcy. Be honest with him. A tyrant father will have liars for children, do you know that? A lie is born of tyranny upon the one hand, and weakness upon the other. And when you rush at a poor little boy with a club in your hand, of course he lies. I thank Mother Nature that she has put ingenuity enough in the breast of a child, when attacked by a brutal parent, to throw up a little breastwork in the shape of a lie. When one of your children tells a lie, be honest with him. Tell him you have told hundreds of them yourself. Tell him it is not the best way. You have tried it. Tell him, as the man did in Maine when his boy left home, John, honesty is the best policy. I have tried both. Just be honest with him. Imagine now, you are about to whip a child of five years of age. What is the child to do? Suppose a man as much larger than you are, larger than a child five years old, should come at you with liberty pole in hand, and in a voice of thunder shout, Who broke the plate? There is not a solitary one of you who wouldn't swear you never saw it, or that it was cracked when you found it. Why not be honest with these children? Just imagine a man who deals in stocks, putting false rumors afloat. Think of a lawyer beating his own flesh and blood for evading the truth, when he makes half of his own living that way. Think of a minister punishing his child for not telling all he thinks. Just think of it. When your child commits a wrong, take it in your arms. Let it feel your heart beat against its heart. Let the child know that you really and truly and sincerely love it. Yet some Christians, good Christians, when a child commits a fault, drive it from the door and say, Never do you darken this house again. Think of that. 
and then these same people will get down on their knees and ask God to take care of the child they have driven from home. I will never ask God to take care of my children unless I am doing my level best in that same direction. But I will tell you what I say to my children. Go where you will, commit what crime you may, fall to what depth of degradation you may. You can never commit any crime that will shut my door, my arms, my heart to you. As long as I live, you shall have no more sincere friend. Do you know I have seen some people who acted as though they thought when the Savior said, Suffer little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven, that he had a rawhide under his mantle and made that remark to get the children within striking distance. I don't believe in the government of the lash. If any one of you ever expect to whip your children again after you hear me, I want you to have a photograph taken of yourself when you are in the act, with your face red with vulgar anger, and then the face of the little child with eyes swimming in tears, and the little chin dimpled with fear, like a piece of water struck by a sudden cold wind. Have the picture taken. If that little child should die, I cannot find a sweeter way to spend an autumn afternoon than to go out to the cemetery when the maples are clad in bright colors and little scarlet runners are coming, like poems of regret from the sad heart of the earth, than to go out to the cemetery and sit down upon the grave and look at this photograph and think of the flesh, now dust, that you beat. I tell you it is wrong. It is no way to raise children. Make your home happy. Be honest with them. Divide fairly with them in everything. Give them a little liberty, and you cannot drive them out of the house. They will want to stay there. Make home pleasant. Let them play any game they want to. Don't be so foolish as to say, you may roll balls on the ground, but you must not roll them on green cloth. You may knock them with a mallet, but you must not push them with a cue. You may play with little pieces of paper which have authors written on them, but you must not have kids. Think of it. You may go to a minstrel show where people blacken themselves up and degrade themselves, and imitate humanity below themselves. But you must not go to the theater and see the characters of immortal genius put upon the stage. Why? Well, I can't think of any reason in the world except minstrel is a word of two syllables and theater has three. Let children have some daylight at home if you want to keep them there. And don't commence at the cradle and yell, don't, don't, stop. That is nearly all that is said to a young one, from the cradle until he is twenty-one years old. And when he comes of age, other people begin saying, Don't. And the church says, Don't. And the party that he belongs to says, Don't. I despise that way of going through this world. Let us have a little liberty, just a little bit. There is another thing. In old times, you know, they thought some days were too good for a child to enjoy himself in. When I was a boy, Sunday was considered altogether too good to be happy in, and Sunday used to commence then when the sun went down on Saturday night. That was to get good ready, a kind of running jump, and when the sun went down, 
a darkness ten thousand times deeper than that of night fell on that house. Nobody said a word then, nobody laughed, and the child that looked the sickest was regarded the most pious. You couldn't crack hickory nuts, you couldn't chew gum, and if you laughed it was only another evidence of the total depravity of man. That was a solemn night, and the next morning everybody looked sad, mournful, dyspeptic, and thousands of people think they have religion when they have only got dyspepsia. Thousands. But there is nothing in this world that would break up the old Orthodox churches as quick as some specific for dyspepsia, some sure cure. Then we went to church, and the minister was up in a pulpit about twenty feet high, with a little sounding-board over him, and he commenced with firstly, and went on about twenty-thirdly, and then around by way of application, and then divided it off again once or twice, and after having put in about two hours, he got to revelations. We were not allowed to have any fire, even if it was in the winter. It was thought to be outrageous to be comfortable while you are thanking the Lord, and the first church that ever had a stove put in it in New England was broken up on that account. Then we went a-nooning, and then came the catechism, the chief end of man. We went through that, and then the same sermon was preached, commencing at the other end and going back. After that was over, we started for home solemn and sad not a soldier discharged his farewell shot not a word was said and when we got home if we had been good boys they would take us up to the graveyard to cheer us up a little it did cheer me when i looked at those tombs the comforting reflection came to my mind that this kind of thing couldn't last always then we had some certain books that we read just by way of cheerfulness there was Milner's History of the Wilderness, Baxter's Call to the Unconverted, and Jenkins' On the Atonement. I used to read Jenkins' On the Atonement, and I have often thought the atonement would have to be very broad in its provisions to cover the case of a man who would write a book like that for a boy to read. Well, you know, the Sunday had to go at last, and the moment the sun went down on Sunday night we were free. About four or five o'clock we would go to see how the sun was coming out. Sometimes it seemed to me that it was just stopping from pure cussedness, but finally it had to go down, and when the last rim of light sank below the horizon, out would come our traps and we would give three cheers for liberty once more. In those times it was thought wrong for a child to laugh on Sunday. Think of that! A little child, a little boy, could go out in the garden, and there would be a tree laden with blossoms, and this little fellow would lean up against the tree, and there would be a bird singing and swinging and thinking about four little speckled eggs, warmed by the breast of its mate, singing and swinging, the music coming rippling out of its throat, and the flowers blossoming in the air full of perfume, and the great white clouds floating in the sky, and that little boy would lean up against that trunk and think of hell. That's true. I have heard them preach when I sat in the pew, and my feet didn't come within eighteen inches of the floor about that hell. 
and they said suppose that once in a million years a bird would come from some far distant planet and carry in its bill a grain of sand the time would finally come when the last atom composing this earth would be carried away and the old preacher said in order to impress upon the boys the length of time they would have to stay it wouldn't be sun up in hell yet think of that to preach to children i tell you my friends no day can be so sacred but that the laugh of a little child will make it holier still no day and yet at that time the minds of children were polluted by this infamous doctrine of eternal punishment and i denounce it to-day as an infamous doctrine beyond the power of language to express where did that doctrine of eternal punishment for the children of men come from it came from that wretch in the dugout where did he get it it was a souvenir from the animals and the doctrine of eternal punishment was born in the eyes of snakes when they hung in fearful coils watching their prey it was a doctrine born of the howling and barking and growling of wild beasts it was born in the grin of the hyenas and of the depraved chatter of the baboons and i despise it with every drop of my blood tell me there is a god in the serene heaven that will damn his children for the expression of an honest belief there have been more men who died in their sins according to your orthodox religion than there are leaves on all the forests of this world ten thousand times over tell me they are in hell tell me they are to be punished forever and ever i denounce it as an infamous lie and when the great ship containing the hope and aspiration of the world when the great ship freighted with mankind goes down in the night of death and disaster i will go down with the ship i don't want to paddle off in any orthodox canoe i will go down with the ship and if there's a god who will damn his children forever i had rather go to hell than to go to heaven and keep the society of such an infamous deity i make my choice now i despise that doctrine and i'll tell you why it has covered the cheeks of this world with tears it has polluted the heart of children it has been a pain and terror to every man that ever believed it it has filled the good with horror and fear but it has had no effect upon the infamous and base i tell you it is a bad doctrine i read in the papers to-day what henry ward beecher whom i regard as the most intellectual preacher in the pulpit of the united states i will read from the paper what he said yesterday and you will see an abstract of it in the new york times of to-day he has had the courage and he has had the magnificent manhood to say i say to you and i swear to you by the wounds in the hands of christ i swear to you by the wounds in the body and feet of christ that this doctrine of eternal hell is a most infamous nightmare of theology it never should be preached again what right have you sir you minister as you are to stand at the portal of eternity or the portal of the tomb and fill the future with horror and with fear you have no right to do it i don't believe it and neither do you you would not sleep one night any man who believes it 
who has got a decent heart in his bosom will go insane. Yes, sir, a man that really believes that doctrine and does not go insane has got the conscience of a snake and the intellect of a hyena. Oh, I thank my stars that you do not believe it. You cannot believe it, and you never will believe it. Old Jonathan Edwards, the dear old soul, he is in heaven, I suppose, said, Can the believing husband in heaven be happy with his unbelieving wife in hell? Can the believing father in heaven be happy with his unbelieving children in hell? Can the loving wife in heaven be happy with her unbelieving husband in hell? I tell you, yea, such will be their sense of justice that it will increase rather than diminish their happiness. Think of these infamous doctrines that have been taught in the name of religion. Do not stuff these things into the minds of your children. Give them a chance. Let them read. Let them think. Do not treat your children like posts to be set in the orthodox road, but like trees that need light and sun and air. Be honest with them. Be fair with them. In old times they used to make all children go to bed when they were not sleepy, and all of them got up when they were sleepy. I say, let them go to bed when they are sleepy, and get up when they are not. But they say that will do for the rich, but not for the poor. Well, if the poor have to wake their children early in the morning, it is as easy to wake them with a kiss as with a club. I believe in letting children commence at which end of the dinner they want to. Let them eat what they want. It is their business. They know what they want to eat. And if they have had their liberty from the first, they can beat any doctor in the world. All the improvement that has ever been made in medicine has been made by the recklessness of patience. Yes, sir. Thousands and thousands of years the doctors wouldn't let a man have water in fever. Every now and then some fellow got reckless and said, I will die, I am so thirsty, and drank two or three quarts of water, and got well. And they kept that up until finally the doctors said, That is the best thing for a fever you can do. I have more confidence to agree with nature about these things than any of the conclusions of the schools. Just let your children have freedom, and they will fall right into your ways and do just as you do. But you try to make them, and there is some magnificent, splendid thing in the human heart that will not be driven. And do you know it is the luckiest thing for this world that ever happened that people are so? What would we have been if the people in any age of the world had done just as the doctors told them? They would have been all dead. What would we have done if, at any age of the world, we had followed implicitly the direction of the church? We would have all been idiots, every one. It is a splendid thing that there is always some fellow who won't mind, and will think for himself. And I believe in letting children think for themselves. I believe in having a family like a democracy. If there is anything splendid in this world, it is a home of that kind. They used to tell us, let your victuals close your mouth. We used to eat as though it was a religious performance. I like to see the children about and everyone telling what he has seen and heard. I like to hear the clatter of the knives and spoons mingling with the laughter of their voices. 
I had rather hear it than any opera that has ever been put upon the boards. Let them have liberty, let them have freedom, and I tell you, your children will love you to death. Now I have some excuses to offer for the race to which I belong. I have two. My first excuse is that this is not a very good world to raise folks in anyway. It is not very well adapted to raising magnificent people. There's only a quarter of it land to start with. It is three times better fitted for raising fish than folks. And in that one quarter of land, there is not a tenth part fit to raise people on. You can't raise people without a good climate. You have got to have the right kind of climate, and you have got to have certain elements in the soil, or you can't raise good people. Do you know that there is only a little zigzag strip around the world within which have been produced all men of genius? The southern hemisphere has never produced a man of genius, never, and never will until civilization, fighting the heat that way and the cold this, widens this portion of the earth until it is capable of producing great men and great women. It is the same with men that it is with vegetation. You go into a garden and find their flowers growing, and as you go up the mountain, the birch and the hemlock and the spruce are to be found, and as you go toward the top, you find little stunted trees getting a miserable subsistence out of the crevices of the rocks, and you go on up and up and up, until finally you find at the top little moss-like freckles. You might as well try to raise flowers where those freckles grow as to raise great men and women where you haven't got the soil. I don't believe man ever came to any high station without woman. There has got to be some restraint, something to make you prudent, something to make you industrious. And in a country where you don't need any bed quilt but a cloud, revolution is the normal condition of the people. You have got to have the fireside, you have got to have the home, and there by the fireside will grow and bloom the fruits of the human race. I recollect a while ago I was in Washington when they were trying to annex Santo Domingo. They said, we want to take in Santo Domingo. Said I, we don't want it. Why, said they, it is the best climate the earth can produce. There is everything you want. Yes, said I, but it won't produce men. We don't want it. We have got soil enough now. Take five thousand ministers from New England, five thousand presidents of colleges, and five thousand solid businessmen and their families, and take them to Santo Domingo, and then you will see the effect of the climate. The second generation you will see barefooted boys riding bareback on a mule, with their hair sticking out at the top of their sombreros, with a rooster under each arm, going to a cockfight on Sunday. You have got to have the soil, you have got to have the climate, and you have got to have another thing. You have got to have the fireside. That is one excuse I have for us. The next excuse is that I think we came up from the lower animals. Else how can you account for all this snake and hyena and jackal in man? Now when I first heard that doctrine, I didn't like it. I felt sorry for people who had nothing but ancestors to be proud of. It touched my heart to think that they would have to go back to the Duke Orangutan or the Duchess Chimpanzee. I was sorry, and I hated to believe it. I don't know that it is truth now. I am not satisfied upon that question. 
I stand about eight to seven. I thought it over. I read about it. I read about these rudimentary bones and muscles. I didn't like that. I read that everybody had rudimentary muscles coming from the ear right down here, indicating, and the most intellectual people in the world have got them. I say, what are they? Rudimentary muscles? What kind of muscles? Muscles that your ancestors used to have fully developed. What for? To flap their ears with. Well, whether we ever had them or not, I know of lots of men who ought to have them yet. And finally I said, well, I guess we came up from the lower animals. I thought it all over the best I could, and I said, I guess we did. And after a while I began to like it. And I like it better now than I did before. Do you know that I would rather belong to a race that started with skullless vertebrae in the dim Laurentian seas, wiggling without knowing why they wiggled, swimming without knowing where they were going, but kept developing and getting a little further up and a little further up all through the animal world, and finally striking this chap in the dugout, and getting a little bigger and this fellow calling that fellow a heretic, and that fellow calling the other an infidel, and so on. For in the history of the world, the man who has been ahead has always been called a heretic. Recollect this. I would rather come from a race that started from that skullless vertebrae, and came up and up and up, and finally produced Shakespeare, who found the human intellect wallowing in a hut, and touched it with a wand of his genius, and it became a palace dome and pinnacle. I would rather belong to a race that commenced then and produced Shakespeare, with the eternal hope of an infinite future for the children of progress, leading from the far horizon, beckoning men forward, forward and onward forever. I had rather belong to this race and commence there with that hope than to have sprung from a perfect pair on which the Lord has lost money every day since." These are the excuses I have for my race. Now, my friends, let me say another thing. I do not pretend to have floated even with the heights of thought. I do not pretend to have fathomed the abyss. All I pretend is to give simply my honest thought. Every creed that we have today has upon it the mark of whip and chain and faggot. I do not want it. Free labor will give us wealth, and has given us wealth. And why? Because a free brain goes into partnership with a free hand. That is why. And when a man works for his wife and children, the problem of liberty is how to do the most work in the shortest space of time. But the problem of slavery is how to do the least work in the longest space of time. Slavery is poverty. Liberty is wealth. It is the same in thought. Free thought will give us truth, and the man who is not in favor of free thought occupies the same relation to those he can govern that the slaveholder occupied to his slaves exactly. Free thought will give us wealth. There has not been a generation of free thought yet. It will be time to write a creed when there have been a few generations of free-brained men and splendid women in this world. I don't know what the future may bring forth. I don't know what inventions are in the brain of the future. 
I don't know what garments may be woven with the years to come, but I do know, coming from the infinite sea of the future, there will never touch this bank and shoal of time a greater blessing, a grander glory, than liberty for man, woman, and child. Oh, liberty, float not forever in the far horizon, remain not forever in the dream of the enthusiast and the poet and the philanthropist, but come and take up thine abode with the children of men forever. End of chapter 4. This concludes the lecture, Ingersoll's lecture on the liberty of man, woman, and child. This is a LibriVox recording, recorded for you by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, during November 2008. Thank you for listening.